Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards. I hope you are well. I hope everyone you love is safe and in a good place. I've heard from a lot of you that you're enjoying these podcasts in the middle of this pandemic, so as long as you want them, we'll definitely keep making them. I've really been looking forward to talking with today's guest. I've known Laura Katana for a long time, and she's been on my list of guests I've wanted to get on here since we started. Her family's been making wine in Argentina for over 100 years. We have a lot to get into, so let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer, and uh, I'm going to mention today's date just because we're in some crazy times. It's Wednesday, April 15th, 2020, and uh, our guest today is probably one of the most fascinating people we've had on this podcast. Laura Katana is an emergency room doctor. She's author of two books, graduated Harvard, graduated Stanford, married three kids, and on top of that, manages her family's beautifully, wonderfully big business in Argentina. And she lives in San Francisco. And I'm guessing she doesn't sleep much. Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, Doug. Thank you. Uh, I, have, I have to make a first correction is that I do sleep well. <laughs> because as a doctor, you know, I've looked at the literature about sleep and basically uh, Sleep, not sleeping well is a source of all evil. You know, more cardiovascular disease, more strokes, more cancer. So I actually make a, an important uh, point to sleeping well. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because my wife's been telling me that same thing for uh, all our marriage. And especially the last, <laughs> the last few months, um, you know, especially on top of everything, um, it's like, what can we do to help ourselves out besides social yeah. distance and wash our hands, but, you know, get enough sleep. Get seven or eight hours yeah, if you can. Absolutely. Yeah, if you can get seven hours, uh, it really increases your chances of, of living a, a good long life uh, almost more than anything else. You know, that and getting some exercise and eating relatively well and drinking wine in moderation, of course. Right. It's that moderation thing I have trouble with sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah. so right now you got you and family, you're uh, in San Francisco, correct? Yeah. So I, I usually say that I live uh, in both places. I, I'm, I've got the, the two places. I'm either in Mendoza or I'm here in San Francisco. And, you know, when I go there, I just go with my backpack. I've got my clothes there, right. uh, the kitchen. And, and I live with my dad when I'm there, which is super fun. I bring my kids and hang out with him and then here I live with my husband and, and my kids and and I really feel like I live in both places but uh but right now that can't happen you're you're stuck here have you no, been moving I, home? no no in fact uh I uh I went to Argentina at the beginning of the harvest in in February okay and then I I left to go to pro wine you know the big uh right. wine fair in Germany and then that was canceled and I was going to go back to Argentina and they uh, did not want anybody from, uh, you know, the U.S. to go back to Argentina because at, at that moment and still now, the situation with COVID is worse in the United States than in Argentina. Yeah, well, I was I was scheduled to go to Provine too. This, this big German wine yeah. trade show, international show. It's a great show, but uh, yeah. that was canceled as it should have been. Yeah. But, uh, so how, you know, as a, it's wonderful, you know, you already told us a little bit about um, getting enough sleep and I know this is kind of a wine thing and all that, but um, as a physician, your whole view of this COVID situation and the virus and, and what's going on right now, any particular views you have on what's going on or you feel good about, agree with what we're doing? Um, well, you know, I can tell you that I have in my whole professional career and, you know, I started medical school in 1988 uh, when I graduated from college. So I've been a doctor for a very long time. And I have never seen anything like this. Uh, however, I have seen a lot of epidemics go through of many kinds. You know, when I started uh, my career, it was the time of the AIDS epidemic. Right. And, and that was a real shock uh, for all of us doctors. In fact, I had 
seriously considered studying infectious diseases and then I'm just too hyper. Uh, so I chose the emergency department because I could <laughs> run around. Uh, but, th- but that was a, a big interest. And I actually ended up getting tuberculosis as a resident. Uh, mm. When I was a resident in emergency medicine, um, there was a lot of tuberculosis because a lot of the patients with AIDS who didn't have medications at the beginning, you know, there were, uh, there were a few medications, but nothing really worked. Right. So they would have, um, you know, other uh, illnesses. And one of them was tuberculosis. And a lot of us uh, ended up um, converting to PPD positive. And me and a few others, we actually had active tuberculosis. So I had to take medication. I had to be isolated. You know, as a doctor, you kind of think of this as, you know, part of the job. I mean, dying from it, that's extreme. You know, it's, right. it's not that common that doctors or nurses or people who work in hospitals, uh, you know, get something that they end up dying from. But in terms of this particular illness, uh, the COVID-19, you know, it's unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. I do think that it will last quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I do think it will overwhelm hospitals, not just for a few months, but uh, for some time, because it's uh, predicted that most likely it will come back in the fall. I think that social distancing will have to continue. And I also think that people who are at risk, people of a certain age, people with um, previous medical conditions will have to be extremely cautious, Mm -hmm. will have to not go out, uh, maybe work from home or really, you know, wear a mask, wear gloves, uh, be very careful uh, but I think eventually there will be uh, treatments, you know, antivirals, mm-hmm. as well as a vaccine. I mean, I think the whole world scientific community is working on this in an unprecedented way. So I, I am very confident that there will be a fix to this at some point. That's good to hear. I appreciate that. Um, I, my brother works in the medical field in uh, a company that oh. uh, produces drugs and um uh-huh. He sent me a summary of of what's going on around the world, like thirty different companies worldwide. You know, this one, yes. in, this one in Dublin is working on this type of thing. This one in yeah. uh, Berlin, they're working on this this aspect. So, it was very comforting um, to see that these top top think tanks, companies, research facilities are cranking. He and he said everybody's working on all this stuff yeah. right now. So. Yeah, you know, makes you feel a little better and gives us all some hope. So Absolutely. we will get through it and um, it'll be changes for a while, but we'll figure it out. Just like, you know, doing a podcast from San Francisco to Napa. Now, I can, you know, <laughs> and we look at the silver lining. So now I can, instead of, uh, you know, meeting some Italian winemaker in New York at the wine experience, I could just get him on the phone in the middle of the night and do a podcast with him. Well, I do. I do think <laughs> that in terms of the sustainability of all this travel that we do, to do wine tastings and and other people who um, have to travel around to meet uh, their suppliers, their customers. I think that uh, a lot of these, you know, Zoom wine tasting, Instagram live tastings, I think that some of this travel could uh, pass to online travel, you know, virtual travel. Mm -hmm. And that would be better for the environment because there would be, you know, a little less maybe airplane travel for business, but more for fun. Exactly. So that'll help the uh, the whole global warming thing. So yeah. we got to look for silver linings and we will continue, the two of us and, the, yes. and everyone else. So let's let's get to your story. Now, you guys go way back. Your, your family story starts in Italy. Is that right? Yeah. So my great-grandfather, his name was Nicola Catena. Mm-hmm. I gave his name to my daughter. Her name is uh, Nicola. Okay. And he uh, came from Le Marche, to Argentina. He was the fifth son of an Italian family, and uh, he uh, lived in Italy. And they had a small farm. They had some grapes. They made their own wine. They were farmers. You know, he was the fifth son, so the fifth son usually didn't get anything. Uh, you know, so he said, "I'm going to try my luck in Argentina." And so he got in a boat. He was 18 years old, wow. and he came to Argentina and he planted his uh, first vineyard four years later after working, you know, wherever he could, and he planted its first Malbec in 1902. Wow. So was Malbec a grape in Argentina? Did they bring it from Italy? Where where did that come from, the whole Malbec thing? So, you know, there was a huge immigration to Argentina uh, from Europe at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Okay. You know, one of these immigrants was my great-grandfather. And it was actually more Italian even than Spanish, but it was 
mostly European from everywhere. There were also some people from Armenia, people from Russia, uh, you know, all parts of Europe who came to Argentina, you know, looking for a better life. Mm-hmm. And there were also some some people from England, from Wales. You know, we had all the railroads established by the British. So we actually have a lot of uh, British immigrants to Argentina. You know, some of them also went to Patagonia, the Welsh, to farm with sheep. They had they Argentina was a big producer of um, of wool mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, so a lot of Italians, more Italians than Spaniards. So that 70 percent of the Argentine population has. Italian heritage. Wow! And so, if you think about during the the independence from Spain, there were five hundred thousand people in Argentina, and during this big immigration, six million Europeans came. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Argentines are, you know, the grandkids or great grandkids of immigrants. You know, mm-hmm. there you go. Okay, they brought Italian varieties, Spanish varieties, but. Nobody really knows why did Malbec become so important in Argentina? Because by the time my uh, grandfather, my great grandfather arrived, there was already a lot of Malbec planted and it was already considered sort of the, you know, the grape to make a high quality wine. And I think the reason is simply that Malbec uh, did well in Argentina because it likes the sunlight. It doesn't like a weather that's too hot. And, you know, um, in Argentina, you have some very warm areas, but you also have the, the cooler areas in the Uco Valley, uh, the Luján de Cuyo, the clay soils. And uh, the Malbec just does well in Argentina. You know, you can plant Cabernet Sauvignon only in some areas, Pinot Noir, I don't know, Syrah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's many varieties planted, but Malbec will make a delicious wine almost anywhere. You know, it'll make sure. more class wines that can be aged and, you know, 100-point wines in only some places. You know, those are really special places. But, but pretty much anywhere you plant it, it will be a delicious wine. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was mostly that it just did well. And so that's why it was so widely planted. And that was, you know, when my, my great-grandfather arrived um, – I don't think that much was known about Malbec, but that's what he decided to plant. So he decided to plant. So the business, so he was a grape grower. Was he making wine also? So when he started, uh, he planted Malbec. He also really liked Bonarda, okay. which it turns out is Charbono. But when the Italians came, they <laughs> thought the taste was very similar to Italian Bonarda, which would always get confused with Dolcetto. And uh, they thought it was Italian Bonarda. And they were quite happy because they were Italian and they wanted something Italian to plant. So along with Malbec, there was a lot of Bonarda planted, which is actually the same as Charbonneau. But Charbonneau is Charbonneau de Savoie. And Savoie was Italian until the 19th century when it became French. So you could say that it's a sort of, you know, Italian grape as well. So he liked both varieties. Um right. And uh, he planted both. We, we actually make a, a very uh, good Bonarda that's sold uh, mostly in Latin America and Argentina, uh, named after him, Nicola Catena Bonarda. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the Malbec is, is probably more what we're about to talk about uh, today because it's really kind of the variety that's made my country famous, my, my family well-known. Uh, and uh, so he started as a grape grower. Right. He had many vineyards Then my... Uh, he actually went, I'll tell you a funny story. So when he uh, died, um, actually, no, in life, he was very proud to say uh, that he had left uh, a winery and a vineyard to each one of his sons. And there's this, this great picture of him and his wife, uh, Ana Mosheta de Catena, with the three daughters and the three sons. And I remember once asking my father to tell me about this photo when it was taken and he said, yeah, he, he was proud to have left a winery and a vineyard to his three sons. And I said, well, what did he leave for his daughters? <laughs> and he said, and he, my father said, well, he was very proud to have found a good husband for each one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, dad, uh, that's not going to work for me because I found my own husband. I want a winery and a vineyard too. You know, and, and, and it's kind That was your great grandfather. That was my great grandfather. But those were the days. That's, uh-huh. that's the best thing you could do for your daughter was to, to make sure she, she married a mm-hmm. good man. Well, uh, I think, I think you could argue that, that if you can help your kids, which is arguable to the, 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 the the men to to meet a great woman and then a woman to meet a great man that 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 is a great service if you can help out in any way although i think that mostly you can help out by staying out of it stay out trust me on that one yes staying out of it is the best way to go that's been successful for me 
Um, yeah, that's yeah. exciting. Uh, so, so he yeah. had. So your great grandparents had six kids: three boys, three girls. Obviously, one of the boys was your father. Uh, so no, so one of the boys was my grandfather, okay. I mean your grandfather. That's and right, my, that's my right. nonno, and and he was the oldest son because it was always the oldest son to the oldest son to the okay. oldest son. Right. Uh, and then he, um, you know, kind of bought his siblings out, and 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 you know, he was the most successful of of them. You know, I mean, Argentina. Uh, you know, one thing to say about Argentina is we are resilient, and we're used to things going badly. And you know, even with the coronavirus, it's you know, it's a big hardship. People are very scared, but, you know, we've been through so many bad things with the economy. I mean, we had 1,000% inflation at one point. You know, we've had a, a week where we had uh, five presidents. Wow. We've had military government. Uh, we've had so many things happen. Uh, and, you know, the valuation where, you know, it was one-to-one, -one. the dollar and the peso was one-to-one. -one. Then, you know, the next week it was one-to-five. Uh, you know, now well, it's one to 60. I, uh, I know I was going to ask you about that a little <laughs> later. I mean, you've just, it's like, I, I hear this and, and anyone knows about Argentina a little bit. It's like, some, you know, some really challenging, challenging years over the last yeah. century. And, yeah. uh, and here you've got, your family has this wonderful, successful business. How do you um, navigate? How do you manage when, when you have three or four presidents in the span of a week and, and you know, wild inflation and all these things and, um, you know, military this and that. I mean, the, yeah. the unknown. I mean, we're all living with this unknown right now. Yeah. And, and you yeah. know, how do you guys do it? You know, my dad and I, we always say that we kind of get invigorated by bad times, which is, it was just a horrible thing to say. But, you know, uh, and I think that there might be a little bit of why I decided to study medicine, because I like hard things. I want to fix hard problems. And, you know, our winemaker, Alejandro Vigil, our head winemaker, he's kind of the same way. You know, the harder things are, the harder he works. And Argentine people as a whole are, are used to working through hardship. I mean, I think all people have hardship. You know, uh, I mean, yeah. right now, the whole world is having yeah. hardship. And, uh, and I, but I think that Argentines are particularly resilient because, uh, you know, so many things have happened. And then, so continuing with the family story, then my, mm -hmm. my grandfather uh, started to run the business and he planted more vineyards, he built several wineries, but he actually was mostly selling his wine in, they would send it in these big uh, barrels uh, to Buenos Aires okay. in the train, uh, where they would be bottled by separate people. It was almost like the French negociant mm -hmm. model of the 19th century, right. where that's, that's... you know the chateaus would make the wine and then somebody else would bottle and sell it. Right, and sometimes and, uh, the same wines getting bottled in four or five different places, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and my grandfather was actually known because he made the best blends. And he had this blend called Tinto Buenos Aires that, that made that means Buenos Aires red. And it was, you know, the, the high-end wine at all the fancy restaurants in Buenos Aires. But then my father came along and he said, hey, I'm tired of, of having somebody else sell all the wines and do all the, the you know, the, the selling. We need to do that. And so my dad actually uh, was the one who really moved to, you know, making our wines, selling our wines, uh, selling it inside Argentina. Uh, but, you know, we had a huge domestic market because, uh, you know, Argentines are all descendants of Italian, Spanish, primarily French. Uh, and, you know, what did those people drink with lunch and dinner? Wine. And, you know, when I was a kid in Argentina, people had wine with lunch and dinner every day in right. moderation, you know, but, but that was, it is our national beverage. So, so, so you're selling, you're selling at that point in time, you're selling most of your wine domestically in Argentina. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we did have, uh, we did have a, some high end wines that we sold that were collected, but it was really mostly in Argentina. And then, uh, you know, it was actually my father leaving Argentina uh, that that inspired him to 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 start the exports and when when he he actually left during the military government in the early 80s my uncle was actually kidnapped oh man and my my father had to negotiate the release you know he was kept in a closet for a week and it was horrible oh. and my my father was worried about our whole family and so he left Argentina and um, 
And he, so, so going. Was, go he ahead, the, was, go he the, was he at the winery then? Was he working at the winery? Your dad? So, yeah, so he was yeah. working at the winery. He was going back and forth between Buenos Aires, where the sales were, and right. Mendoza. Like, he, he, my dad basically, you know, lives in two places, except for him, it's Buenos Aires, Mendoza. For me, it's yeah. San Francisco, Mendoza. And um, so I wondered, and, so he, because I read that he came to California in the 80s, your dad. Yeah, well, so actually, my dad's uh, history with the U.S. dates back a little further. Okay. So when my dad was a student, his mother was the headmaster of the local little country school. She wanted everybody to, to have an education. And she had told my father, I hope you're not going to go work with your dad in the, the winery business. You know, you need to be an academic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my dad was a very studious kid. He He's, very, he's really smart person and, and just a very open mind and, you know, he was a top student and he actually wanted to study uh, physics or chemistry. Okay. And, you know, I had no plans to work with his dad, kind of like me. Not that I'm not, I don't think I'm as smart as he is, but I also had no intention of working in the family winery when I was, you know, growing up. Sure. And he had planned to go to the U S to study. And okay. then his mother sadly died in a car accident with his grandfather, uh, very, very sad story. Uh, and so all of a sudden my grandfather is left with no wife, no father, you know, who worked with him at at the winery and my dad's in school. Uh, actually he's been, he's in his last year of high school and with these plans to go study abroad because, uh, you know, he was such a good student. He would certainly be offered a scholarship somewhere in the U S uh, where he wanted to go, you know, with all the, all these Nobel prizes and that, that was his dream. And so he basically had to stay because his father went into depression, you know, mm-hmm. with what happened. And so he ended up uh, deciding to study economics because it was what he could study locally that was at a good level, helping his father. So he started, you know, kind of working and going to school. Um, he finished economics, but then this business was somewhat stable and he... Um, he decided to go to study in the U.S. Okay. and he decided to go to Colombia, where he was accepted in economics, uh, because he would be able to fly to Argentina. And mm. so that's that's when I actually uh, went to New York when I was two years old with my brother, my mom, and my dad, and that was his first entry into the U.S. And the reason he also studied economic and why he wanted to study uh, in the U.S. was that he wanted to fix the Argentine economy. You know. My dad was determined, yes, he wanted to make wine, he needed to feed his family, but he wanted to help Argentina because, as we all know, Argentina is a country of riches. You know, we have all these ports entries, you know, mm-hmm. rivers, we have, you know, uh, metals, we have farming, we have uh, oil, uh, we have incredibly motivated, smart people. And and everybody in the world is always asking themselves, why is this country such a mess? <laughs> <laughs> When we have all these riches. Right. And so my father was determined to help Argentina. So we go to the U.S., then we come back, then he continues uh, to work with his dad in, in the winery. He actually founded a university huh. in Argentina. Wow. But then comes the military government. So then up and that again. And that was around what year was so that? So he went to 70s? Colombia in the early 70s. Okay. Then he came back. Because uh, he had to come back, his dad needed him. Mm-hmm. Then, then it's the military government. He goes back to California, and that's where he, uh, with my mom, they're living in Berkeley because he was a visiting scholar at Berkeley, and I was going to high school there. That's how um, I learned English relatively well ah. because I didn't speak English that well before. So you were yeah. in high school in Berkeley. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So my dad actually had to teach himself English before going to Colombia, which wow. is very admirable, I think. He's a sharp guy. Everything I'm hearing about this guy. And yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's and he's not scared. You know, the, the harder the challenge, the more determined he is. So, so anyhow, he and my mom come, and my sister, my little sister, Adriana, mm-hmm. we have a famous vineyard named after her. I think you tasted the wines when we were in Naples yes, together. Yeah. Um, you know, so she's born in Berkeley, and he uh, decides to go with my mother to see what's going on in the Napa Valley. And all of a sudden, he hears about the judgment of Paris and these crazy (laughs) Californians who are saying, hey, we're going to make wines here in California as good as the best French wines. Robert Mondavi. Robert Mondavi. That was the thing. And he had grown up in a family where his father, my grandfather, loved Malbec. He would go to Europe. He'd come back and he'd say to my father, listen, Malbec is as good as any French wine. Right. 
But my great-grandfather, Nicola, the original Italian immigrant, would say to my dad, you know what? Don't ever challenge the French. They own the top wine. <laughs> so don't challenge the French. I love that. Don't challenge the French. Yeah. We make simple wines, and we have our Argentine consumer, and we're so, I'm so lucky to have come to Argentina where we have tons of steak. Okay. You know, he, my great-grandfather used to eat a piece of steak raw every morning for breakfast. To wow. remind himself of how lucky he was, because actually, meat mm-hmm. uh, was cheaper than pasta wow. back then. Wow! It's not now. Now it's a little more expensive, yeah. but it's still <laughs> fairly in, inexpensive. Uh, you know, uh, beef in Argentina is still mm-hmm. fairly inexpensive. So, so my father had grown up thinking, you know, don't ever even think of challenging the French. Got it. And all of a sudden, he goes to California, and and these crazy Californians are saying, "Yes, we are going to." And then there's this judgment of Paris. So my father, after a couple of years, you know, the military government leaves. He decides to come back to Argentina, and he says, "You know, if these Californians can do it. I'm going to try to do it too." But that's the time where Chile is doing really well. We're not, you know, we're talking the right. the 80s, and right. you know, everybody in Argentina is saying we need to follow Chile which, by the way, produces a lot less wine than Argentina, but they don't mm-hmm. have a domestic market. So, you know, they were exporting They're everything. Exporting They're doing everything. really yeah. well with the low end. And everybody in Argentina is saying, we need to do the same as Chile. My dad says, uh-uh, no, I'm going to go the California way. I am going to try and make wines from Argentina that can stand with the best of the world. And he actually basically sold off anything he had that was not for high-end production, for high quality. And he spent several years just studying the terroir, going to these cool climate areas where you can get more minerality, you know, Winkler Zone 2 and 1, you know, cooler climate, cooler nights, lots of sunlight, you know, more, less fertile soil. Yeah, like less fertile soils. You know, we have these alluvial soils that have limestone that are stony with good drainage. And he um, he realized that, uh, you know, at first, actually, he thought maybe what he needed was a bunch of, you know, fancy German presses and, and the nice temperature control and stainless steel and the good French oak barrels. Mm-hmm. But he realized, you know, after some time that he also needed to go to some newer areas. And, you know, that's when in 1992, we planted the Adriana Vineyard which is basically in a place where uh, he was told that uh, the vine would not thrive, that maybe you could ripen Chardonnay, but never Cabernet, never Malbec. And we actually make some incredible Cabernet up there. Well, I got to interrupt you for a minute. So he comes back from California. He says, I'm going to go this quality route. No one's doing this in Argentina. Let's go. What did you, um, because I'm assuming at that time, your granddad was still kind of running the whole show, right? Or had your dad taken over? You know, I mean, my dad sort of took over at the age of 20. And ah, I mean, okay, I have okay. to say that, you know, my dad, I mean, we, we all get kind of annoyed at my dad because he'll be like, well, when I was 25, I was <laughs> like, I could remember all the growers and all the prices and all of this. And, you know, uh, we have, you know, uh, a CEO for all our businesses and, you know, the CFO and the winemaker. And we're like, Okay, we know that when you were 20 years old, we could do this, but we can't. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm like, okay, Dad, I need to look this up in my computer because I don't have the brain you had as a 20-year-old or, you know, as a 52-year-old, which is the age I have now. So, you know, I, I – um, so when he, he pretty much started and, and took over from his father and okay. basically, you know, his father worked for him and – and I have to say, we, we have a, a nice way in our family of doing this because, you know, even if, you know, my dad is still runs a lot of things, you know, he he wor- he will gladly say he works for me. He basically tells me what he needs me to work on, and he does that. And, you know, he has no problem with me telling him, hey, I, stay out of this. I got it covered, uh, but I'd love for you to help me with this. Mm-hmm. And. That's what he did with his father. And, um, you know, it comes from from a, a, a place of incredible mutual respect. You know, my dad can do everything I can do. Well, you know, the one thing that is hard for him is traveling and speaking in public. Okay. Uh, he does not like that. Right. So that that's the one thing that, that's a little easier for me. But everything else, I mean, he's incredible. Uh, and we work together. And, and, you know, and as, you know, I've gotten older and I have more experience. There's more things that I, you know, only ask him for advice if I need a, a you know, some advice. Sure. 
but uh, he did the same thing with his father, except that I did it when I was 40 and he did it when he was 21. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, it's just, it's so good to hear. A, a family, you know, mutual respect, love, caring, uh, egos get left outside the door and just, oh, and, yeah. and, and the, and the goal is for the common good. I've got a, Listening to your story, I have a one I've got to relate, and it's pretty cute with my father, who we lost a year ago, but he lived a ninety. I know. Oh, I... and it's all right. It's in ninety-four. It a great, great oh, life. But what a great life! It was 94. great. And you know, we had thirty-five, six years together, which I never thought we'd be working together when I was a kid, and we and it just happened, yeah. and it was wonderful, and and all those good things. But near the end of his life, he's probably he's probably about ninety-three, and I went into his office one day and said, "Hey, Dad." I said, uh, I need some advice. And he was looking at his computer and he turns around and he goes, he looks at me, he goes, no, you don't. You're just saying that to make me feel good. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, that was last week when I came in, but today I really need some advice. <laughs> so that was a good laugh. That's true. But, yeah. But, um, no, I mean, I, I still, you know, my dad, um, just turned 80 last year and, uh, you know, there's a lot of difficult things that uh, there's no way you can decide them on your own. And and I like to think of the Socratic method where, you know, we're, we're discussing something and we'll each present our argument. And then there's always a winner. Like there's always one argument that wins and then we go, we, we go with it. We both go sure. with it, but uh, we often have to start at opposites to reach a better solution. And uh, I, I do the same thing with our staff, you know, hmm. uh, I always say to people that work with me, I don't want people that say yes. Like I, I really can't work with people that agree with everything I say because there's no possible way that I'm right, even most of the time. So, you know, from challenging ideas uh, come the best ideas. And, and I think that works really well with family, you know, because you do know that you both have the exact same objective at hand. And also, you know, you're not always thinking of the immediate profit. And that is... One thing that I think family uh, companies in general have in common and the people who work for you kind of get bathed in that same culture. And they also start thinking of, you know, what happens 20 years from now or what, what I like to challenge my team is 100 years from now. You know, that's my goal. I want to be making wine as a family winery and, you know, elevating Argentine wine for another 100 years. Can we do that? But yeah. to do that, we need to start now. Exactly. That's the long term view. So, yeah. So your father, um, I hope in Argentina he's recognized as being the guy to really bring quality to the forefront. I hope I hope he has that recognition. Yeah, no, he he is he is loved in Argentina, mm. revered. I mean, he goes to restaurants and people want selfies with him. And, <laughs> Great. Oh my God, it's it's the sweetest thing to go with him anywhere when people recognize him, and he's so humble and um, just oh. I the nicest it. person. Yeah. It's great. So let's, let's talk about you, but before you, how'd you, how'd your mom and dad meet? How'd that happen? Oh, well, they were actually students together and they, they both tell a different story. And I actually, <laughs> I believe more my mom's side than my dad. So, you know, my dad basically claims that my mom was like desperate for him. And, and actually uh, <laughs> the, the, my mom tells the story that one time he wanted her to talk to him. So he, he fake dropped his glasses and then <laughs> pretended he was blind as she helped her. But, and so he claims that that's when she fell in love with him. And she, she was actually thinking like, Oh my God, poor guy, like oh, more feeling bad for him. And, uh, <laughs> I got to help this guy out. That's exactly. And you know, and so, yeah, but um, they met when they were in university and, and my dad always likes to remind us all that, you know, as much as he was the top student, she was the top student. And I'm like, Dad, stop saying that to my kids because they might not be the top student. Right, you know? right. <laughs> I don't want them to think that the only position in life is as the top student. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were both students uh, at the University of Mendoza. And my mother actually runs a software company. And, uh, wow. you know, she has her own separate business. But she did help in the early days of Catena you know, uh, selling uh, our wines in the U.S., you know, when Paul Hobbs uh, was our consultant for several years. And mm -hmm. actually, my mom and Paul Hobbs would go around bringing the wines because, you know, my dad's kind of shy and he, you know, he didn't 
he also thinks his English is really bad, and his English is actually perfect. He has an accent, but you can understand him perfectly. Sure. My mother speaks English very fluently, and she's also very gutsy. She's, you know, she has no fear of anything. Um, and so she actually helped with the initial launch of the wines. And there's a famous story of my mom uh, that actually was told to me by a customer, where she went in and uh, she asked the customer. First, you know, would you like to taste my Chardonnay? And he asked about the price, and the price was, you know, we're talking about, you know, early nineties uh, was uh, fifteen dollars. And you know, the 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 customer said, "Well, I'm not buying an Argentine Chardonnay for fifteen dollars, you know, retail." And so she said, "Okay, well, what's your best Chardonnay you have?" And so the guy's like, "This one." And so she she said, "Okay, let's get brown baggage." And she <laughs> she had the guy <laughs> compare it, and she claims that. After she did this one, she kept on repeating it, and she claims we always won. You know, I don't know. In this particular case, this customer confirmed my mother's story that our wine won, and so he decided to carry a very expensive Argentine Chardonnay and to sell it, you know, to hand sell it, because nobody knew Argentina could make great Chardonnay. And uh, so my mom really was out there in the early days, and I think that it was, it was very important. You needed a gutsy person back then. Well, she sounds like her daughter, the two of you. <laughs> I tell you. Yeah, we, we, we have a lot in common. Uh, uh, yes, yes. I think so. And that's a compliment. Um, Thank you. So you're born and raised in Argentina. You have brothers and sisters? Yeah, so I have uh, my brother Ernesto, who okay. actually makes his own wines. He is all organic, all biodynamic. You know, the Adriana Vineyard is organic. Uh, we focus on organic and sustainable, but he is all about uh, biodynamics. Uh, he um, is an artist, a uh, very talented person. Mm. Uh, he uh, sells a lot of wine also in Argentina. Like you can't go to a restaurant in Argentina without seeing one of his wines. He makes a wine called Tical, uh, Alma Negra. His wines are sold in the U.S. as well. Um, and he kind of likes to run his own uh, production, his own project, and uh, my my dad has been very supportive um with that. And, and for me, I, I kind of started as apprentice and did apprentice for 20 years, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we, we, my brother and I are a little bit different and my brother wanted to be independent from day one. And sure. that's worked really well for him and for us because my brother has done so many interesting things with wine that, uh, you know, that contribute to the interestingness of our family. I think it's, it's boring when, you know, you're only doing one kind of thing, uh, although I wouldn't say that anything at Catena is boring. You know, we're very dynamic. And then my sister, Adriana, she actually studied in, uh, in at Berkeley okay. history. And then she went to Oxford for her PhD in history. Wow. And she uh, was teaching at Warwick in England. She lives in London. But uh, this year, uh, later this year, she's going to start working with us. And she actually started on a wine project called, called El Enemigo with our winemaker. They, they have their own uh, winery. And this wine was two, one of the two uh, first winners of 100 points from Parker oh, wow. for, for a Cab Franc. So, so despite being a historian and living in London, you know, this project that she's worked on with our, our head winemaker has done really, really well. And she also helped design... It, she was the idea person for a new label we have, Malbec Argentino, with the four women telling the story of Malbec. Have you seen that label? Not yet, I think no. we had, no. So Malbec Argentino uh, tells the story of the Malbec variety on a label. It's beautiful. You should you should look it up. I'll it's look it four up. women. The first one is Eleanor Vacuitain. The second one represents the Italian immigrant to Argentina, represents my great-grandmother. Then the, the third woman is Veloxera which actually phylloxera mostly exists in the female form. That's partly why they couldn't get rid of it because they couldn't stop the reproductive That's cycle. That's right, all the And then, the, so, so it's a, a third female figure. And then the fourth female figure is my sister. She wanted to be me, but I decided it was her. And then inside <laughs> the label, there's like references to to Cahors in France, to, you know, to the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And that has become a label. And she is a historian and came up with this whole idea. And it's been a very successful label so it, it does. It, it is good to have a historian in the family. Oh no, it's great. It's a great story. You got to have stories. Yeah. You you guys yeah. have a lot of them. That's super. So yeah. that's that's exciting. She's coming back. So you were you were born in Argentina, but you you said uh, you were up in Berkeley. Was Berkeley High School yeah. for you? 
So I actually went to uh, CPS. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's college prep. Okay. So it's it's a private school in Berkeley, and uh, and then you know I started. I I mean my English was quite bad. I remember getting up and, and the blackboard to you know when they ask you to write something, mm-hmm. and I wrote who H O O. Yeah. You know, for like, you know, who did this? And I right. remember everybody looking at me with this look in their faces of fear, like, because they didn't want to laugh. And I remember the teacher, like, you know, gently correcting me. So I started out, mm. you know, spoke English relatively well. I couldn't write it very well. Uh, and I started, uh, I was in uh, 10th grade. Well, I started in ninth, and then my parents had to go back to Argentina. So I kind of skipped the grade. And then I went to Harvard where... You know, I had absolutely no intention of working with my dad. I loved <laughs> both science and humanities, right. but then kind of went for the science because I thought it was more precise. And then, you know, I wanted to do something to help people. So I said to myself, you know, medicine, it's perfect. It has science. It has some humanity side to it. Right. Uh and, and then you get to work with people and I want to help people. That was my goal. And, you know, today with what my father has done in Argentina, what I'm doing in Argentina, elevating Argentine wine, I know that I'm helping more people through wine than I am, you know, as an individual doctor, hmm. you know, because when you help, uh, you know, thousands of people who work in the vineyards, you know, to, to farm sustainably, when you help Argentine wine not be in a commodity when you show people that argentine wine can be among the best wines in the world you're helping a whole industry you're helping millions of people and you know honestly i now believe firmly you know that responsible businesses help as much as doctors and nurses and teachers uh you know not to take any credit off of doctors and and hospital personnel because right now sure. you know they are in the front line and they're mm-hmm. making so many sacrifices my my husband's an emergency doctor and you know i mean there's been so many deaths from from right. hospital workers uh and it's a huge sacrifice but i think that that you know i'm seeing in the news right now a lot of people talking about uh those who do amazon deliveries you know all the the people that are keeping uh People at home supplied with what they need, you know, those people are just as important as as the traditional, you know, help uh, professions. And and so, you know, I started as a doctor and I love being a doctor. I I love being uh, an emergency medicine physician. I'm now transitioning um, to volunteer work. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you're still if you're still practicing. So so I actually actually, the the crazy thing is that last year as as a 80th gift to my father, I said, okay, I'm finally going to transition to volunteer doctor. And it was literally a couple months before COVID. And so I left my position as emergency doctor because, you know, I'm traveling too much. I have to be at the winery. My team, you know, couldn't get a hold of me. You know, I can't answer the winery if I'm a doctor. You know, you have to be 100 percent there. And so but, the, but the, you know, being a doctor is very vocational. It's, it's almost impossible. To, you can't leave it because you have to be, you know, that that direct satisfaction of helping somebody. And, and I am helping a lot of my friends with questions, but I am going to start my volunteer job as soon as they reopen the clinic that I'm planning to work good, at here in good, the city. Good. So, yeah, that's good. news. Yeah. And so yeah. you, you and your husband, it's Daniel. How did yeah. you, you guys meet? So we, we actually met in residency. Uh, <laughs> so we were both doing emergency medicine in Los Angeles at Harbor UCLA. Okay. That's where we met. Yeah, we were both residents in emergency medicine. Wow. Yeah. And so before you retired, you were practicing for how many years? ER. So um, almost, well, uh, emergency medicine, I, so it would be 25 years. Uh, wow. But actually, in some sort of clinical setting, uh, thirty years. Wow, and and the th- you guys have you have three kids, right? Yes, yes, three kids. Uh, they all come back and forth to Argentina with me since they were little. And uh, my middle son likes to work at the winery. My daughter's worked at the winery, and my oldest son is actually going next year to UCLA to do a PhD in organic chemistry. But he claims he has no interest in wine. But you know, <laughs> organic chemistry and wine—that's that's kind of right later, there, right? Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> well, we'll let that we'll let that one play out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and doing some research. Tell me about this uh, Catena Institute of Wine. That's 1995. Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah. So you know, I was. Th- you know, not thinking at all of working with my dad, but I had been traveling to France with him 
when he would go on his exploratory trips, because I speak French, I studied French in, in high school and college. So I would be his, you know, quote unquote translator. You know, I, I think it was part of this big scheme of his. But so I fell hmm. in love with drinking wine as a consumer first, not thinking I would work with the family. So I, I actually had a pretty developed palate and knew quite a bit about wine. And, um, you know, my dad asked me to go to the New York Wine Experience the first time we were invited. So I go there. Then I call my dad back and I say, I just started my first job as a doctor, uh, as an emergency doctor. I said, Dad, I have to help you. This idea you have that, you know, Argentine wine is going to compete with the best wines of the world. You know, it's a ridiculous yeah. dream. You're, you're, it's never going to happen. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I need to help you because like, I went to the New York wine experience. People would walk in front of me and not even taste my wine because they said, Argentina, you know, who, who's ever heard of Argentina making wine? We were the only winery from South America. Wow. It was 1995. And, okay. uh, you know, uh, so, you know, I'm sure Schaefer had like really long lines at that wine no, experience. No, you know, no, we, no, we no, had nobody. No, no, no. Uh, you, no you need, <laughs> I need to tell you some history. I got stories for you, but. Uh, okay, okay. Well, well, yeah, but, but, but anyhow, so I called my dad and I said, Dad, I need to come work with you. And really, I don't know anything about selling, but I know about science because mm-hmm. I've done a lot of research. And I said, I want to help you really get to make these wines. And it's all going to be about studying the soil, the climate, the winemaking, because the only way to compete is to actually make wines that are just as good, wines that can be blind tasted and that are just as good. And we realized that, you know, nobody from outside of Argentina knew anything about high altitude farming. Nobody knew anything about Malbec. I mean, most people would come to Argentina and make Malbec like a Bordeaux variety. They would do long macerations like Cabernet. Whereas actually Malbec needs to be treated a little more like Pinot Noir because it actually has these soft tannins and it has really floral aromatics. So you, you know, you need a completely different approach um, from Cabernet. And so I said to my dad, let's, let's start a research group within our winery so that we can test, test, test. And, you know, we do about a thousand microvinifications of all kinds of different things uh, because I realized that we need to, to, to develop our in-house knowledge about Argentina that, you know, you could learn a lot from outsiders, but in the end, you've got to figure out your own terroir. Sure, exactly. So this was a, a basically an internal research center that you yes. guys started. Okay, now, yes. so is this when you started tapping into consultants like Paul Hobbs? Who's, so the, 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 I mean, the consultants were, were a little before. So Paul okay. started in the late 80s. Okay. Uh, you know, I met Paul in California because he lived in California, but I... I, I worked only a little bit with Paul. You know, by the time I, you know, I started in the mid-90s and Paul, uh, his last vintage was, uh, you know, he was there for 97 okay. uh, for just the harvest. Uh, but, I, but I do know Paul very well. Uh, but then my dad had this great uh, technique uh, to, to get uh, knowledge from an outsider. So he basically uh would give an audience to anybody who come to Argentina would say, you know, we need to meet the godfather of Argentine wine, Nicholas Catena. <laughs> meet him. He's he's doing all the 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 new stuff and the quality wine making. So, you know, Jacques Lourton, Attilio Pagli, who had worked with Antinori, all the, you know, the 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 people trying to make wine in Argentina, um, Michel Roland, you know, everybody would come and talk to my dad. And my dad would say, you know, um, here's my winery. If you want, I lend you these tanks, these barrels, so that you don't have to make a big investment. You can use my presses. But in exchange, you have to teach us everything you know. You have to <laughs> help train my team. And it was like really sort of a handshake deal. And honestly, that's how our wine and making team learned everything about traditional French winemaking. Uh, and all these people have remained friends all over the world. We just uh, did a book for my father's 80th birthday, and all these people wrote letters uh, to my dad about the the old days. And, uh, you know, that's how we got a lot of knowledge, uh, and and our team got trained. Wow. So you were joining, you joined him up, you joined him uh, in 95? Is that when you joined the family business? Yes, yes. I mean, I started started earlier doing these trips with my dad, but really— you know, formally in 95. Yeah. And, and you were still a doctor, but you were living, well, yeah. you were living in both places, like you said. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I, and I was actually, you know, I was full time doctor then, but emergency doctors, you know, you only work about 10, 12 days a month. So I was still, you know, my free time, I'd be calling Argentina, you know, any vacation I would get. I mean, there is one thing about emergency doctors is that you often get 
a week off, two weeks off, and then you work all the other days. So it does give you flexibility. It's it's pretty much the only field I could have picked that I could be doing both. And it, and that's a random thing. You know, it's just pure luck. It's amazing to me. And so these days, what's what's the size of how many acres or hectares do you guys own and number of cases and brands? I mean, it's 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 big, right? So, you know, I don't uh, give number of cases because, you know, we have lots of different, we have sure. several different wineries, different, well, different, different projects. Brands. That's right. I understand. So, that. you know, um, you know, I have, you know, a number of hectares that I call are, you know, Grand Vin or mm-hmm. Grand Cru, even if, you know, Grand Cru is a French term, but that's our internal name for that. Sure. And those hectares, um, you know, are in the range of, of around uh, 70 hectares, so 140 acres. Uh, but all in all, you know, our families. Uh, total vineyards are about a thousand hectares, so about two thousand acres. That's fantastic. Yeah, and then we also, we you know, as a family, we also uh, have some brands that are, uh, you know, in in um, you know more economic price points that we sell all over the world. That uh, we buy some grapes from growers, but we work very closely with growers. So we have a full sustainability program that we teach all our growers to farm sustainably, and you know, to me. You know, I I like fine wine. I like collectible wine. I love your wines, uh, you know, because they age so well. But, um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a wine snob. You know, I can drink uh, a ten dollar, uh, ten euro Albarino and and be ecstatic. You know, uh-huh. I um, I believe that there is a place for every, you know, every, every time has has a, a, a price point and and. You know, whatever money you have, you can have a great wine. Totally with you on that one. I mean, sometimes the, you know, the the, the gems and the top wonderful, beautiful wines, but it's just like, I, I don't want to kind of deal with that every night. You know, it's like, no, I just want to no. uh, something nice, refreshing, a nice rosé, a nice, like you said, Albarino yeah. I go oh, to yeah. in a big I, way, you know. Um, I, I have no, I feel no shame in loving rosé. And, and I also love natural <laughs> wines. And I know it's almost like a contradiction. You can't love natural wines that are, you know, like so, like a little oxidized and a little funky and just like so interesting. And rosé, which, you know, some people say it's like a commercial wine. I love Pinot Grigio. Like, a oh, really yeah. hot day, yeah. like a cool Pinot Grigio or a cool rosé. I mean, that's delicious. I, I, I love well, it. Well, there's, there's also, <laughs> there's something I'll kind of miss right now. I never thought I'd say that. It's like white wine on a plane. I can't say that. I, oh. I, I, I kind of miss that now it's, because I always, can, I, I always have white wine yeah. on the plane just because yeah. it's like, wow, what's this all about? And just kind I of agree. try to delve, delve into it. And I kind of miss it because I'm not on a plane right now. It's just not you happening. Know, I agree that if you're going to have, if you're going to risk it on a plane, go with white. <laughs> go with white. I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about, now you've got a winery named after your son, yeah. Luca. What's that all about? Yeah, so so Luca, you know, I have a vineyard, but I, I actually uh, make um, the wine at one of our family wineries, but it's a completely separate team from the Gadena team. And basically Luca started because, you know, when I, when I was working with my dad in the, in the, in the sort of mid to late nineties, uh, that's where I started hearing a lot about old vines. You know, I would go to France and everybody's talking about old vines and I'd hear that all the great wines in the world, uh, at least in Europe, uh, they had these vine age requirements like you know you can't go into the top line unless the vine's at least 20 years old and then in california people were talking about old vines in australia and in argentina everybody was talking about young vines and the you know we our family had some old vines that we were making beautiful malbec with but um the wineries would say hey no you know those old vines from that grower they're bad quality you know any grapes that you don't farm yourself are going to be bad quality Okay. And, you know, and then I heard about sine qua non, you right. know, it's like, you know, that's amazing wine and they purchase their grapes. Uh, and so I said, you know, why is it that the rest of the world can find these beautiful vineyards? And actually Argentina has, you know, thousands of hectares of pre-philosophic vineyards, you know, ungrafted vines uh, and, and these beautiful vineyards. So I said to my dad, dad, I want to do a project with old vines. And I want to figure out if we can make great wine out of some of these vineyards that are basically selling their grapes in bulk. And we're all planning to pull out their vineyards and replant because the yields were so low. So I basically spent a summer 
uh, the summer of um, 1999, driving around and just making handshake deals with people saying, hey, you know, I'll pay you by the hectare. And, uh, you know, I want you to let our team manage, you know, this little parcel here. Or sometimes we buy the whole vineyard if that's what they wanted. And and that's how Luca was born, actually, was basically because I wanted to make old vine uh, wine. And, um, you know, and then I started a second project, La Posta, also with growers. But now, actually, many wineries are making beautiful wines from growers. Uh, you know, the same as you have uh, in California, that some of the growers are, are farming some of the best grapes. And oh, yeah. uh, that was the origin of uh, the Luca project. And, and the other thing with Luca is that I, I did things that nobody else was doing. So I have a really beautiful Syrah. I have a Pinot Noir that um, is beautiful. And, and I just actually came out with a new um, label, Domain Nico, that I have five uh, single parcel Pinot Noirs. And Luca is a blend, and I've been making it since 1999. And Domenico, I just started it uh, with the 2016 vintage, but the 17 is what I'm selling outside of Argentina. Nice. So, you know, I'm doing stuff that is not, like, does not have some kind of, you know, huge uh, commercial potential. But I feel like, you know, you as a family, if we're thinking of the 100-year plan, we've got to always be trying new things. Trying new things. Well, yeah, that, you know, we do that here. You try th- things on the side. Yeah. Here's an experiment. If yeah. it works out, you move it into... Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and just a quick thing, that's what's great about uh, wine as opposed to medicine is, you know, you can't just try things in medicine. <laughs> yeah. You have to be evidence-based. You have to know your stuff. Well, you know, and, you can't, and the world is learning about that right now, aren't we? Come yeah, on. no, exactly. But you have to because you, you, you know, you can't take risks. That's why the vaccine uh, production is going to take a year and a half because right. you, you know, you it has to be really safe. The luxury of wine is that you can test something. If it doesn't work out, well, you don't, you drink it yourself. Yeah. You know, it, it it is kind of wonderful to be in wine because you know there's there's a limit to to how many mistakes you know you can yeah. make mistakes and it doesn't matter you know as long as what you're selling in the bottle is good you can make a lot of mistakes you got it you got it i know about that drink it yourself that happens that's happened, that's <laughs> happened to me for it's been a, it's been about 15 20 years but it, I, I know that one um hey new subject i didn't realize you're an author you've written two two oh, books yes. so tell me yes. about the two books yeah Yes, uh, and I'm on my third. Uh, I'll tell you about the third. So the first Great. book was Vino Argentino, which is, uh, you can find it still on Amazon. Probably not a lot of, and, and, and you know, probably used in used uh, book bookstores. Uh, Vino Argentino, an insider's guide to the wines and wine country of Argentina. It's a book about the wine regions, the, the people in Argentina, the culture, as well as uh, recipes. Um, from the different regions, and it was done by Chronicle Books, which is a, a great publisher. Uh, I spent about eight years trying to to get somebody to accept the project. So you know when when you know when they say that the Harry Potter ladies, I don't know how many years it took her. It took you know, a long time, it is yeah. true. It is really hard to get a book published. So that was the book, and we had it translated in in, in um, Spanish and Portuguese, and and it's really a great book to take to Argentina. I listed. 100 wineries that you can visit with all their emails and, and addresses. And I interviewed many other producers in Argentina who were all extremely willing to be in the book. It was just a great project. Uh, and that was published in 2010. Okay. And then Golden the Vineyard um, is a new book. That's and it's brilliant. illustrated. Yeah. yeah, it's an illustrated book about some of the most famous wines in the world. And uh, I basically went to, uh, you know, I picked families that I knew that their wines were really famous. And I wanted to tell sort of the more, you know, playful stories about the families. Uh, not, not, they're not all playful. Also, some of the tragedies, like, okay. you know, the murder between the Medici's and the Antinoris. Did you know that? That <laughs> no. there's like a murder story between the Medici's and the Antinoris. Like, I mean, Piero Antinori was like besides himself looking at the, the illustration because he's like, how did you know about this story? I'm like, it's, <laughs> your, it's in your website. <laughs> I need to get this yeah. book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, and then it's illustrated because I think people are really uh, learning through their eyes these days because there's mm-hmm. so much uh, visual going on, you know, with Instagram and Facebook. And and so I wanted illustrations because I think also that, you know, people love to drink 
wine, but they don't like to read about wine as much. Uh, I mean, there's the wine nerds out there, like you and me, but, you know, people like to to, to look at things. Right. You know, look at wine folly. Like, they are so popular because it's all illustrations about wine. And so that was part of the idea. And so that book came out just now in March. Terrible timing. So Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I, I, can they get it? Uh, can they get they, on Amazon so they can, or how they so get they it? They can get it in actually in independent bookstores who are okay. selling online, but it, it's on Amazon. Actually, they sold out on release because wow. there were pre-orders. There were so many pre-orders. It's on sale in UK, in US and Canada, and also in Brazil and Argentina. There's a, a Portuguese and a Spanish, and I'm working on a potential Chinese edition. Cool. That is so neat. Yeah. So people need, and you're working on a third book, you said. Yeah. Huh? So the, the third book is with our winemaker about uh, Malbec and the Argentine terroirs of Malbec, and it's also an illustrated book with illustrations of soil and and maps, and also the history of Malbec uh, told through these like letters from my winemaker to me and emails and social media. It's crazy. It's a, it's it's a book like you've never seen. It's either going to be amazing or horrible. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> it'll, amazing. It'll be amazing, I'm sure. I'm but it, sure. it'll be in Spanish. How's your Spanish? Ah, sí, sí. That's, you know, oh, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, they, everybody in California speaks some Spanish, so well, yeah, I'll sp- give you a copy. Well, I speak enough Spanish. to get... My Spanish will get me in a fight in a bar. That's what happens with my Spanish, so... So I'll stick to Hopefully English. out of out of a fight. Out of a fight. Box. Well, yeah, that's because I <laughs> I used to, I used to be fast, but not anymore. So I got to be a fast talker. <laughs> fast talker. Um, so anyway, these days, you guys, you're. So, I'm, I was curious about this. I was thinking about you and your wines, because um, I know a lot of folks in other countries they export. You know, their biggest market is the United States. Is that is that fit for you guys now, or you still sell most so of it in Argentina? We, so we sell about half our wine. We export half in Argentina, okay. Okay. which I really like because I don't want to just be an exporting winery. Right. You know, I, I, I really care about my domestic market, the Argentine people. But I'm also, you know, kind of, you know, fanatical about, you know, people outside of Argentina getting to do Argentine wine. So, yeah, our top market for exports is uh, the U.S. Right. And it is rough out there. Mm. It's rough everywhere. You right. know, I'm with you. The, but it's, but the thing is, you know, every time you think, oh, it's rough for me, then at least I'm selling wine in some places. What about restaurants that mm. can't run their business? So honestly, um, this is one of those situations where there's always somebody worse off than you and, and we need to help ourselves and them and people who are worse off than we are. That's what we're doing. And, yeah. uh, so, but curious, um, if someone was new to new to you and your wines, how how would you steer them? Who should what what brand what wine label should they look for to get a feel for what yeah. Catena is doing? What would be a good so, way? So to... you know, I, I would start with the classic Catena Malbec. I always call it yeah. our Chanel Number no. Five. You know, because it, it's been around since the '90s. It's a blend of four different altitudes. It's just classic Malbec. It's often, you know, the the blind wine at one of these master sommelier tests. Right. or WSET because uh, it's very classic. It tastes like Malbec. It's not too oaky, so it's, you know, you really smell the fruit. It's, it's classic Argentine Malbec. That's where I would start. Okay, good. And then, you know, you can you can try this wine, Malbec Argentino, the one with the label with the four women. I'm, I'm kind of in love with that wine. And yeah, then if that's you the one go, I want to try. I want to see that Yeah, one. if you want to go for the more collectible wines, uh, I would try one of the Adriana wines. And actually, if you're a lover of, um, you know, California or Super Tuscans or some of the Bordeaux blends, I would taste, taste the Nicolas Catena Zapata. It has my father's name and it's a Cabernet Malbec. Nice. And it has, it's more of a cabby Malbec. And uh, I find that people who really love Cab tend to prefer that wine over a, a 100% Malbec. Okay. All right. Good. Great, great tips. Thank you. And if yeah. people want to find your wine, I mean, I'm sure it's Restaurants are tough right now. Uh, yeah. Any particular retail, or well, is there is I online mean, is online, and if if online, I think, where? Uh, I think that um, yeah, pretty much most major wine stores in the country carry one of our wines, and I would I would you know encourage people to support these stores. Yes. Uh, call them up and and get an order from your local store uh, because you know they we need we want them to stay in business. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely. And uh, and then uh, yeah, and if, if restaurants are delivering wine, I hope once in a while they're pairing their delicious food with Malbec. Good, good. <laughs> and uh, social media, you've got a couple of accounts. Where can people find you and follow you? Yes. So the the winery has uh, a Facebook, Catena Zapata, and an Instagram at Catena Malbec, which is no, no, sorry, the Instagram is Catena Wines at okay. Catena Wines. The Twitter is Catena Malbec. And mine is uh, Instagram, Laura Catena, MD. Uh, MD, got because it. Because the, the Laura Catena is, is taken by an Italian woman who will <laughs> give it up. <laughs> so it's my name plus MD. Plus MD. And then my, my Twitter is my name straight, Laura Catena. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Well, listen, you are so nice to do this today and take your time. Thank your family for being uh, quiet in the background and putting up with us. I appreciate that. And I really miss you a lot. And I can hardly wait till we get back to those situations where yeah. we can see each other, all these wine tastings yeah. and things we go to together. Yeah, it was it was really fun to do that event together with you at Naples. Yeah. I, I felt so honored. Oh, by the way, I just want to tell you that my winemaker, I've told you this before, but he is obsessed with your wines. <laughs> and he, like... Anytime I say, what can I bring you back from the U.S.? He's like, Schaefer. He's well, like, why are you even asking me? So he loves everything that you guys do. And congratulations to you and your family winery for all the traditions that you're keeping. And uh, let's have our families get together sometime. Yeah, because I tell you something. I, you know, I realized just this morning I was thinking about, I've, I've, I've taken so many normal things for granted. You know, just having lunch with my crew in the kitchen, 10 of yeah. us, you know, around a table. Yeah. Uh, getting on a plane and coming to Argentina and visiting your winery. You'd be like, yeah. oh, yeah, I'll do that someday. It's like, wow, yeah. if I could do that right now. It's like, I know, I would, right? I would just be so appreciative of that opportunity. So yeah. I think we're all going to come out of this with a, a greater appreciation of just life and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think so. All you, right, Doug. You take care. Great talking to you. Thank stay you, in Doug. touch. Stay well. Stay safe. See okay. Salud. Salud. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that. It was great to finally have a chance to talk with Laura and get the full scope of the Catena wine business. We packed a lot in, covering a hundred years of the family story. I think they're fortunate to have Laura at the helm. She's savvy, super energetic, cares about her team, cares about making great wine, and takes the long view. Be sure to check out the variety of Catena wines and get to know the best that Argentina has to offer. Thanks very much for checking out this new episode of The Taste. If you want to help other people find the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, shoot us an email at podcast at We'll see you next time.